Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast that takes complex ideas from the investment world and makes them accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. Today, we're going to discuss several planning opportunities that are particularly beneficial today, given where markets stand and given current tax rates and the low interest rate environment as well. Joining me today is Don DiCarlo, Senior Vice President and Chief Planning Officer at Wilmington Trust. Don, thanks for taking the time to join me today. My pleasure, Tony. Thanks very much. Always a great opportunity to see if we can help our clients make some sense out of the current environment and present to them maybe one or two ideas that can help improve their situation. Great. So, of course, we're experiencing a lot of distress in markets as a result of the coronavirus and the impact that all the mitigation techniques that are being pursued across the country and and the world, for that matter, are having on the economy. And, of course, we're seeing a lot of individuals, a lot of investors experiencing a certain degree of stress, myself included, when we look at our personal portfolios and we see the significant drawdowns that have occurred. What's interesting, though, is that there are a variety of planning opportunities that if, as we expect, the markets return to their prior levels over some reasonable period of time, if these opportunities are availed of by investors, by families, what we find is that the net economic results after tax, in some cases before tax, are actually better off, which is to say that clients, investors will have more net assets had this experience in the markets never occurred in the first place. And and so that's the silver lining that we want to talk about today. So let's get into our first planning opportunity. And it's one that I think people think about a lot, not just in a situation today where markets have depreciated as much as they have, although the opportunity, like most things that we're going to talk about today, may be particularly beneficial if, in fact, we have a rebound in markets, as, again, we're predicting, which is the whole idea of converting a regular IRA to a Roth IRA. Tell us about that one, please. Sure. And this is really a good planning strategy that can apply to a lot of people. And basically what we're talking about is someone who may have taken tax deductions when they contributed to what we'll call a normal IRA or traditional IRA. They have the opportunity at a later time to convert that IRA to a Roth. During the conversion process, what a person elects to do is to pay the tax on the IRA and contribute the proceeds into a Roth IRA. Now, what's a very good planning opportunity um, and again, there's a sense of optimism here. We don't want to be overly optimistic or be naive about where the markets may go or may not go. But if, from, a, from a general standpoint, if we expect at some point in the future that asset levels will be higher than they are today, then it can make a lot of sense for someone who is otherwise considering uh, a Roth conversion to do so now. But anyone who can convert an IRA to a Roth IRA, the theory would be that you could pay less tax than you otherwise would. And once the conversion is complete, all of the appreciation, in fact, all distributions from that Roth IRA going forward will be completely tax-free, not just tax-deferred. So the planning strategy is, given the depression in asset values at this time, it may be worthwhile to pay less tax now on a conversion and let the future appreciation, again, optimistically assuming that occurs, in order to benefit of you without any future income tax. So, Don, I've always heard it said that In the case of converting an IRA to a Roth IRA, if you think that your tax rates are going to be the same in the future as they are today, and I'm talking about ordinary income tax rates, that it really doesn't make any sense to convert. 
the analysis for any individual, whether to convert or not, notwithstanding the current market volatility, is a comparison and an estimate of where the income tax rates for that individual may be, as well as where the law may be. We can't predict the law, and sometimes it's difficult to predict where your individual circumstances might be. But for an individual, this might be a year where income tax is going to be lower based on everything that's happening. There could be losses that could be recognized. There could be other ways to depress income. But the general rule of thumb, there is a break-even point. And if you feel that the assets, as you've mentioned, may have a chance of more rapidly appreciating than in an otherwise steady market, then we think it's still a good thing to do. I'll put one caveat out there, and this is something that the law changed recently. There's no longer any ability to recharacterize. So under prior law, 2018 and prior to 2018, uh, you could basically get a free do-over. If you converted to a Roth IRA and the market went against you, in other words, the assets continue to drop, the government gave you the ability to kind of undo the planning, and that was called a recharacterization. That safety net, that redo is no longer available. Before we get into some of the other planning techniques, I do think it's important just from a fundamental investing and income tax standpoint that all of our our listeners are aware of some of the, the key, what I would call good investor hygiene that anybody should be thinking about. One is that rebalancing is just such an important step in managing a portfolio. And I'm going to give a quick example. So if we started and imagined a portfolio that was 50% stocks, 50% bonds, that was worth $100. And let's just assume that the value of the bonds don't change at all. But the stocks drop by half of their value. So they go down by 50%. And let's say that once you're down by that 50%, you decide to rebalance. So now what you have a portfolio that consists of 50% more shares of the stocks that you started with. And now the market rebounds so that the value of those shares reattains the level that they were at prior to the crisis. What you would find in a situation like that, as a result of the rebalancing, and not even taking into account the tax value of the losses that you've been able to generate, you end up with more money by around 12.5% than you started out with. Here's a situation where even putting taxes aside, for having lived through this perilous moments, in the world, but having exercised sound investor hygiene, which is to say just rebalancing the portfolio, once we get back to where we started, we're actually better off than had this event never happened at all, purely from an economic standpoint, of course. And then on top of that, you do have the benefit of having realized significant tax losses. Second thing I would mention is prudently putting cash to work. We have a lot of folks that have been sitting on the sideline over the last number of years, and they've accumulated cash. And here we have an environment where both on the equity side, where we think there's significant value for investors that have time horizons of 12 months or more, and on the municipal income side, municipal bond side, where we're seeing significant dislocations, we're seeing municipal bonds trading at values, particularly in the investment grade space, that are significantly below what we believe their intrinsic values are given expected default rates. We see significant opportunity on both the equity and the bond side. And so putting that cash to work now in a deliberate way, probably over the next 30 to 60 to 90 days, makes an awful lot of sense. Now, one of the things that we should mention is that when tax losses are realized, it does involve changing the economic position that the client has in the portfolio. So an investor might, for example, be invested in a particular company and they realize those tax losses could be through the rebalancing process. If we, in fact, want to go back into the market and maintain that economic exposure, 
we may be prevented from taking losses. Don, maybe just share with us some of the key ideas that people should be aware of as they engage in some of this activity from an income tax standpoint. Yeah, thanks, Tony. You raised a really good point. Well, if you think about tax loss harvesting as a strategy, the economic benefit that you're trying to achieve is to put some monetary value on a loss. And the way monetary value is given to a loss is that it can be used to offset gain, which is a strategy that you mentioned. When, as you begin to rebalance assets, that rebalancing could, in fact, uh, cause you to recognize gain. Not, not, every, not every gain is wiped away because of market volatility. Obviously, there's different asset classes and different stocks are affected differently. So the ability just to offset gain has its own economic value. Two, you can intentionally recognize gain, and to the extent you do not have any capital gain to offset, you can offset up to $3,000 of ordinary income. That may not be a a big deal depending on the individual circumstances, but there's an opportunity, an economic value, in other words, to recognizing that loss. You can also use that to recognize or offset gains that you previously recognized. In other words, a loss you take today, as long as it's in the same calendar year, can be used to offset gains you previously recognized. You can use it proactively or reactively, depending on your situation. So there's definitely an economic benefit. And the tax policy behind losses um, comes with some limitations. And I think, Tony, the primary limitation is what we call the wash sale rule. The government's policy, basically the tax policy, is that we will give you the monetary benefit of a loss if you... Let's say, how do I say this? If you economically have changed your position. So the wash sale rules are put in place to make sure that someone has, in effect, changed their economic position. And the basic rule is that you cannot recognize a loss if within 30 days before or 30 days after that loss, you have purchased stock. In other words, the government looks to say within that 60-day window, if you've bought stock um, that you've recognized a loss on, that you really haven't changed your economic position. So the wash sale rules are designed to make sure there's some economic loss. And there's a variety of planning around that to make sure that you can recognize the loss and, in effect, not lose your position in the market. Give me an example. Yeah, of sure. Work. So l- let's say that you own Coca-Cola stock. And as a result of the market volatility, Coca-Cola stock has dropped by 40%, creating a loss uh, or potential loss in your portfolio. And based on your strategy, you want to recognize that loss. But you don't want to lose your position in the soda industry. So you can buy Pepsi and maintain some exposure to that industry while still recognizing your loss. Pepsi and Coke being different companies would not constitute um, an identical or substantially identical stock, which would wash each other. So let's pivot to what I think of as the big kahuna of opportunity here, which is people that have what we think of as generational planning needs. And this is really when we're getting into what you call, I know, Don, the advanced planning arena. This is the really, I think, sophisticated stuff. But the way it basically works is that you have an asset which you expect to appreciate significantly. And in today's environment now, where we've seen all this depreciation, we think it's going to be temporary. And that's not to say that all assets are going to come back. Some will come back more than others. But if we're right that the coronavirus is going to have a transitory impacts on the environment, the equity markets will certainly come back, private businesses will recover, et cetera. All that appreciation can be structured in a way so that it happens in the hand of, instead of today's owner of the asset, in the hand of a lower generation, whether it's children or grandchildren, et cetera. Can you give us an example of how that might be structured, how that works? Yeah, sure, Tony. And what you're talking about is, in fact, advanced tax planning. And very particularly, we're talking not about income tax planning, 
but we're talking about transfer tax planning, and that's mitigating the state and generation skipping transfer tax. So as we talk about this strategy, we, we do want to be sensitive to the fact that during times of market volatility, uh, individuals who may have otherwise thought about transferring wealth or have significant wealth to the extent that they want to begin to mitigate estate taxes and are thinking about implementing gift strategies, we understand completely that in times like this, you may feel less secure about doing that. You might want to be more conservative and hold on to the assets a little longer. In other words, the motivation to gift in order to get a tax benefit may not be as strong during times of anxiety and stress. And we recognize that and we want to be sensitive to that. So an example where someone can take advantage of, of well, and again, it's a cautiously optimistic view that assets at this point will say are, are artificially depressed in value. I don't want to, we don't want to be naive or we're sitting here in the middle of a crisis, not the end of it. But basically the strategy would be if you were otherwise planning to make gifts and those gifts were being made in order to limit or mitigate future estate tax, then it is a very good strategy to give an asset at a low value so that post-gift appreciation can escape taxation. And a simple example would be if I had a, a stock worth $100 and my estate plan called for me to gift that stock, if that stock is now $50, I can make a gift of that stock at $50. And if it appreciates back to $100, I've only used $50 of my exemption, not $100. The $50 of post-gift post appreciation escapes estate taxation or future taxation. So that sounds great. I know that for a lot of folks, the exemption amounts are pretty attractive because they've been very aggressively expanded over the last number of years. But what are the levels now? Yeah, and it's a good way to think about it. The amount of assets that a person can pass in life or death is about $11.5 million per person. But it's very important to think about it this way, that the estate tax exemption is $5 million. And for a period of time, we have a bonus exemption amount of $5 million, all of which is adjusted for inflation. That bonus amount of exemption, that additional $5 million plus inflation, will expire or sunset on December 31st of 2025. So there's a limited window to take, take advantage of what we'll call this bonus exemption, which came under the tax job and cut tax law, um, CCGA. Um, so... At $11.5 million, that's a lot of money. For individuals who ha are concerned about that and still may be exposed to estate tax, the ability to use that exemption at lower values, if you're in that class of, of situation, it's going to be a very attractive opportunity to do that. Not only to take advantage of an exemption, which on its face has an expiration date, but also to use assets to fund that exemption at a, at a hopefully temporarily depressed value. Now, without getting into the too much of the technicals, because that's really what the lawyers come in to do, all the different, the grants and the defective trusts, et cetera. I do know that there is a, you can't just sort of give away all the appreciation. How does it work, Don? There's a, there's, I know there's an interest rate. How, how does that work? And is this a good time to do it? And no. where do we stand in that regard? Yeah, actually, I, I would say our, our number one recommendation, because uh, it, it has the lowest potential economic downside. And in fact, is it, the economic result in some ways is, is uh, immaterial whether, if you implement this strategy. And in fact, to the extent um, some refer to the strategy as a hedge you win, tails you really can't lose. And what we're talking about is a GRAT, and that's an acronym, G-R-A-T, a grant to retained annuity trust. And what a, in, in simple terms here, what a GRAT allows you to do is to transfer assets to a trust and retain the right to receive those assets back over a period of time. That period of time is set forth in the trust instrument. 
if during the period of time that the assets are being paid back to you in the trust, if the appreciation in those assets can exceed the applicable federal rate, which you pointed out at the beginning of this podcast is very low, and for April, it'll be 1.2%. Is that an all-time low? We're at the all-time low. Okay. 1.2 is or are very close to the all-time low for applicable federal rates. So at 1.2%, a grad strategy will have gift tax success. It will, in other words, it'll provide what we'll call gift tax alpha. If the assets during the period they're held in the trust appreciate only greater than 1.2%. And here's what's very attractive about this strategy and why we think it makes a lot of sense and frankly is our number one recommendation from an advanced tax planning perspective. That in the event that you give away those assets, you're able to take them back. So for people that are concerned um, about uh, insecurity, even very wealthy people, this is a strategy where you can get assets back. You're not actually gifting the assets. All you're gifting is a portion of the appreciation. In fact, any appreciation over 1.2%. So many people feel much more comfortable giving away appreciation rather than giving the assets. And this is the all, this is what you were referring to when you said heads, we win, tails, we don't lose. We get, to, we get a do over. In fact, if we want to. Correct. And because if you have a longer time horizon, we know that from an economic standpoint, the income is worth more than the principal. In an environment where the rate is only 1%, that could be a large amount of value a tremendous that you're actually giving away. You're exactly right. It's a tremendous amount of value. So you're talking about success and failure and the ability to essentially unwind these trades or redo them, et cetera. Does that mean that individuals that have these on the books today where it hasn't worked because the markets have gone in the wrong direction, they should be thinking about that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. Let me let me respond to that in two ways. One, um, let's assume that you go ahead in the next couple of weeks, a client establishes a grant-to-retained annuity trust. And we were overly optimistic and the markets continued to be depressed. And in other words, we don't end up getting the appreciation. We don't even get to 1.2%. Here's why there's not really downside. Well, that's not a good result. The result is no different. In other words, you would have had that same result regardless if you had done the grad strategy. Your economic position has not changed. So there's no additional downside for doing a grad. There's only potential upside. So it's a very favorable strategy. For those individuals, and you make a good point, Tony, who may have, let's say there's an individual who a few months ago set up a grant to retained annuity trust, and the assets have fallen so much in value that there's really no conceivable way um, in a short amount of time that the assets would recover to the point to make what we'll say the grant successful. There are plenty of planning strategies and flexibilities to basically undo that grant, to declare it a loss, maybe exchange cash for assets and start over. And so there's lots of strategies on how to undo grats using cash, swapping in the assets. And there's also a strategy referred to as rolling grats, where you do them very short term so that in any one term you may not win. But over a period of time, you can have this strategy work when it needs to work. So it's a very valuable strategy. And again, given a time period where many people are concerned and insecure and even very wealthy people may be nervous about making gifts, I really believe the grad strategy is really what it, what it, what it can be known as is a, is a no-lose scenario. Business owners in their own right as a category have lots of various considerations that are different than those of us that don't own our own businesses. What about the application of these different techniques to the business owner as opposed to people that have Lots of public market securities. Do they still apply? Or Yeah, great point, Tony. And the answer is they do apply. And of course, we've been talking and giving examples about the public market. 
in the area of privately held assets, that value is not something that's so readily available. Trying to take advantage of this unfortunate time period in our country, the value of private market wealth will also be depressed. And the fundamental theory does not change that any individual who's otherwise worried or considering planning for estate taxes, even after the downturn in values, may find themselves exposed to federal or state estate taxes, which they were planning to mitigate, or were trying to find a tax-efficient way to begin a succession plan to transfer assets to the next generation. The same fundamental premise applies, and that is if the assets are at a portion of time, or at a period of time, rather, in a value that may be artificially depressed because of the environment and the crisis, it would be a very good time to consider these strategies using privately held assets. The strategy of a GRAT, the idea of making gifts to trust, especially grantor trust, that all applies specifically to privately held business interest in the same. And in fact, for privately held business owners who are so inclined, there are additional tools and techniques around valuing those assets when coupled with artificially depressed values and then coupled again with low interest rates can make for a very, very efficient transfer of assets and a very, very efficient succession plan, especially when family members may be the ultimate recipients. To put it all together, it's really a lot to digest. It almost strikes me that this is a natural time, despite the distraction that the coronavirus represents, it's almost a natural time to check in on the overall plan to make sure that the plan continues to be applicable and that some of the, what I would describe as less core elements of the plan, but really critical elements, whether it be healthcare proxies or those kinds of things are in place. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And we're already seeing that already. Uh, times like this make people do, let's say, higher level thinking, more uh, strategic thinking about their lives and their personal circumstances, and maybe an opportunity to revisit, and I know this is on a lot of folks' minds, to revisit their fundamental estate plan. Not just the, the tax opportunities, whether they be income, investment, or transfer tax, but to give consideration to their fundamental estate planning documents. Obviously, you know, we're all faced with uh, sickness and health and death, and those issues necessarily make people think about their wills, their trusts, their financial powers of attorney, their medical powers of attorney, advanced medical directives. So it is a really good time, and I agree with you 100%, that maybe after some of the initial shock of this wears off and we're stabilized um, and we have time, that it is a time to rethink the planning in general. And I would make a note, um, obviously, this is a very understandable situation where people give some renewed thought to medical documents and healthcare powers of attorney. And for anybody who's worrying about it, that I, I can't get to my attorney, I can't get these documents signed, most of the law firms um, are finding ways to operate remotely. And the states are actually responding to allow um, relief from some signing requirements. Obviously, executing documents may require witnesses or acknowledgement from a notary, what you want to pay attention to is the states are allowing virtual notarization, virtual witnesses. And in many states, many estate documents can be um, valid just by being signed and dated at the end. And the, and the state governments are recognizing that. So we don't want anybody to feel that they might be behind. They don't have the health care document they need. They may need someone to be appointed as a power of attorney. Um, it's very likely that you can continue to get those documents done, even in the middle of, of, of this crisis. And that's very important, not just for wealthy clients, but for all clients. Well, I know that's not the most upbeat note to end our conversation on, but I, I am going to summarize in a more upbeat way, I think, the key takeaways for today, Don, which is number one, rebalance, rebalance, rebalance. 
The economic case for rebalancing in an environment like this, again, if we end up where we started and we've rebalanced, we will end up with pre-tax more money in our portfolio than had this never happened in the first place. So the need to rebalance is just so critical. Number two, make sure that in addition to rebalancing, that you're really engaging with your tax advisors around the tax loss implications of the rebalancing. And even if you're not rebalancing the entire portfolio for any reason, that you're really evaluating the tax loss opportunity here because it's an historic opportunity, I think, to bring portfolios in with our best thinking uh, as well as to generate tax losses that can be carried forward if need be for a long time. And then lastly, make sure that if you're somebody that has, from a family standpoint, generational planning needs, that you're really taking advantage of what could be a historic opportunity if markets recover to transfer the appreciation on your assets that's about to occur free of any gift to state or even in some cases GST tax to the following generations. So those are really, I think, exciting opportunities and volatility creates opportunities. And it's not just hedge funds that can do great when there's volatility in markets. It's also us as more typical individuals that invest every day, day in and day out. So Don, I wanna thank you for taking your time today and sharing your terrific insights. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning content. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, 
WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail, and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. 2021 M&T Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved. <laughs>